Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Tyler, it's a thrill to do this show today. Uh, We're going to be talking to an amazing uh, author and journalist, Andrew Lewis, who authored a piece in uh, the New York Times Sunday Magazine that came out on August 15th. Uh, We link to it in Coastal News today. The title of the article is The Long, Slow Drowning of the New Jersey Shore. And it's a comprehensive piece about the efforts to uh, combat sea level rise and shoreline erosion, how that fits in with development and what local governments are doing, the cultural implications of uh, what's happening in New Jersey. It's a fantastic piece of work. Uh, funded by the Pulitzer Center's Connected Coastlines Reporting Initiative. Uh, Andrew Lewis is also the author of a book called The Drowning of Money Island, a forgotten community's fight against rising seas, forever changing coastal America. A tremendous guest. Uh, We're really just thrilled to have him on, and I'm looking forward to a conversation, Tyler. I'm looking forward to hanging out with Andrew for the next hour, as I'm sure all of our listeners are, too. It's going to be a fun one. And, uh, you know, Peter, the, the role that good journalism is playing right now all around the American shoreline, and we're following this renaissance on Coastal News Today. When we first started doing Coastal News Today, it was a struggle to find 10 blue economy-related news stories each day. Right. And now we can't we have to narrow down our top 20. Yeah. Because there is a a whole bunch of new content coming online and along with the the volume of content there's also an increase in the quality of the content as well. Yeah. And this this piece that Andrew Lewis did uh, struck us when we saw it and we had to reach out to Andrew and have him out. Turns out he's a listener to the program. Yeah. Which is very cool. Anyway, we really look forward to uh, diving in today with Andrew Lewis, uh, learning all about this paper, how he wrote it, what he learned. But first, a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new Coastal Resilience Department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. Find them at lja.com. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at coastalnewstoday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. Andrew, it's great to have you on the American Shoreline Podcast. Thanks for being here. Thank you, guys. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here, definitely. Let's start uh, with your story before we start talking about the Jersey Shore. Uh, tell us a little bit about where you're from and what your connection is with the coast. Yeah, so... I grew up not too far from the Jersey Shore. I grew up in southern New Jersey on the Delaware uh, Bay Coast in a in a pretty rural community. Uh, It was you know surrounded by farmland, not too far from the from the marshlands and and things like that. And I I grew up fishing in the bay, and you know we were about forty five minutes from from the um, from the Atlantic coast. And my mom was a bit of a beach rat, so. Uh, she was also a teacher, so she had summers off. So we, we spent a lot of our free time in the summers at uh, a little beach called Strathmere, which is just south of uh, Ocean City in, in Cape May County. And uh, what? tell us a little bit more about what you would do. I mean, your mom was a beach rat, you say. What does that mean? What What would you be <laughs> doing around? The, how would you occupy your days growing up on the shore? Well, if it was, uh, well, if we weren't out fishing on the bay, then... Like I said, yeah, uh, our mom would have us there at the beach, and and we uh, we very quickly picked up surfing. So it was, I have an older brother, and and he and I just quickly became obsessed with surfing. So uh, our mom would sort of just sit on the uh, the bulkhead at the time because uh, there wasn't much beach at Strathmere, and, and just sort of very patiently watch my brother and I surf for six hours at a time. And then when we got older, and we got more obsessed with the sport it turned into a year-round thing so she would uh 
take us after school and grade papers in the car because it was about, you know, 40 degrees outside and, and we'd, we'd surf through the winters uh, there wow. in, in Strathmere. So it was, uh, it was pretty simple. It was pretty idyllic, to be honest. And it was just a, it was a lot of surfing and a lot of sort of living out, outdoors in the, in the marshland, the beaches and, and in the woods. A deep connection to the coast and a deep connection to the shoreline, uh, which is the subject matter of your New York Times uh, Sunday Magazine piece. Uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, your professional interest in shoreline management or shoreline-related issues, uh, including uh, your book, The Drowning of Money Island? Uh, at what point did it become something that you wanted to invest in as a journalist? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, you know, I, I got my start in writing and journalism, uh, writing for, for surfing magazine. So I spent a lot of time traveling around and sort of just being with the ocean and, and you know, spending time in coastal communities and, and things like that. And and I happened to, I was living in California at the time when, when Hurricane Sandy happened in October 2012. And I was writing for Outside Magazine, just doing freelance work and I had I spoke to a few surfer friends of mine from up near uh, Point Pleasant Beach, which is sort of on the, the northern Jersey Shore coast, and and um, they just wanted to help out with relief efforts. So I flew over and I spent the next five days or so traveling with them, and we went to every single one of the the hardest hit places from you know from the Jersey coast through Staten Island out to Rockaway and Long Beach, and it just really um, I had never experienced so much damage, um, you know, to see witnessing the damage, you know, on the, on the coastline. And it just made me want to, to learn more about it and write more about. It. And then of course, you know, in, in the ensuing, you know, weeks and months, just watching the way that, uh, the state sort of postured as, you know, in defiance to, to the storm, to nature. And, you know, the slogan was stronger than the storm. And, and I came to sort of just see that as a as a bad idea, and I, and I just kind of wanted to learn more about, you know, what the state was doing, what the country was doing in terms of coastal resilience, and and that's that's sort of how it how it all started. You know, that is such a great observation, and it's something we're curious about and talk about uh, every once in a while on this show. This this sense of defiance, uh, you'll see it in post-hurricane CNN uh, news coverage after a community has been devastated by a hurricane. The American flag is in the debris pile. The owner is standing in front. And the the determination to rebuild and to come back and to not retreat, it seems to be part of the American character. Uh, How do you explain the fact that we continue to... uh, put our lives and our property in such risky situations. What do you think accounts for that? Do you, do you have a sense of it? Well, I mean, I think it, I think it goes back to basically what you just said. I mean, it's, it's deeply embedded in, in sort of the American character, right? We're, we're supposed to, uh, you know, we're, we're a country built on manifest destiny. We're supposed to spread, we're supposed to develop, um, you know, we're, we're not supposed to shrink as a community and, 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 and that defiance is, you know, I think has been bolstered by, you know, you see, you see the efforts overseas with, you know, we, we've, we've got a hand in everything. And, and sometimes, you know, say aid work and stuff like that has been really great. You know, the American influence has been great for places. And, and obviously, in other cases, it's, it's been disastrous. But I think all of that sort of feeds into our idea that we don't stand down. And, um, you know, if you stop and just think about it in terms of the coastline and <clears throat> nature, it's that's <laughs> obviously that's a that's a fallacy. You know, we, we, we can't do that. But, you know, it's it's hard for uh, coastal communities who, you know, they they don't want to retreat and certainly development helps their bottom line a lot. So it's it's become not only is, is it this entrenched American ideal, but it's also now become something that's that's intertwined with with economics. And, and so it just becomes uh, really uh, an intractable problem. 
You know, Andrew, it strikes me uh, that you write about more than just coastline issues. You're not uh, a total specialist here, though we're grateful that you have uh, turned your attention to this area. Do you see this uh, in your writing, reporting, uh, research into other areas of American life? Do you do you see any of that same sort of defiance elsewhere? Just out of curiosity. I mean, geez, I think I think we see that defiance in what's going on in the West right now, right? I mean, the 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 water issues on the on the Colorado River. It's the same kind of hubris, you know, that we've <laughs> we're, we're living and and continuing to expand these these cities in the middle of desert, you know, and in places where there is no water. And, you know, I guess it does tie back to, to water in that sense, obviously, but it's it's a different it's a different situation, but it's the same kind of, like I said, hubris and, and defiance of, of 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 nature. Yeah. Well I'll tell you the first thing, Peter, that strikes me about our guest here, Andrew, is two things. The one is bringing up this uh, this 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 response to to Sandy, you know, Andrew, you are, um, I mean, you're the, the work in this piece, it's outstanding reporting, but man, you've got an, you've got a point of view here. Uh, and uh, I'm curious to know the, the origin of that. Did you, are you, are you, uh, I assume you went to college. Where did you go to school? Did you study uh, j- journalism or writing? I'm, I'm, I'd like to know a little bit more about how you became such an excellent observer of things. Yeah, uh, well, I just, I, I went to undergrad in, in San Diego, California, and then I, as I mentioned earlier, I, I picked up the job with Surfing Magazine and and worked with them as an editor and, and then as a, as a freelance journalist, and I, and then later uh, went to, to grad school uh, for, for writing, both, both programs were for writing, but I think, you know, I have to say that I don't know the observational aspect of things, but it, it certainly has to do with, with sort of growing up and being outdoors, uh, you know, in the ocean and in, in these environments that are bigger than, than oneself, you know, and, and then traveling, of course, really, um, I think helped me not only be a better observer of, of myself, but, you know, of the world and, 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 and of, and of other people. And I think that's probably, sort of the the key part of it is is the travel that I did uh and then of course as I just mentioned I went back to grad school and that was actually uh right after Sandy uh that Sandy kind of I think inspired me to move a bit away from just doing sort of basic surf writing to to sort of diving into deeper more important journalism and I went to school in New York um to uh Columbia University's writing program and and that was a time to just really steep myself in, in good journalism and good writing. And, and I think that, you know, that sort of combination of the, the long studying that I did in writing and, and, and just the, the life experience that I had in traveling really sort of helped me, um, you know, be a better, better observer. Any, any particular uh, writers that you looked up to or, or books in particular that you, uh, you hold up as being uh, influential and in, in kind of you finding your voice? Yeah, I mean, I think anything John McPhee is is fantastic. Uh, I don't think there's a better uh, observational writer than than John. I think I think Catherine Booz, uh, Beyond the Beautiful Forevers, uh, you know, when she she wrote about the, the slums in Mumbai. I mean, it's just incredible work of journalism for its for its um its beauty you know its literary quality but also just its its hard-boiled uh journalistic rigor it's it's just a fantastic book um i guess i can't just because of my life experience i I also can't discount bill finnegan you know uh barbarian days is is the book i think that he's he's most famous for but but bill's journalism in the new yorker you know through the through the 90s and, and 2000s is is really fantastic stuff and and um you know, it, I, it's before Barbarian Days ever came. I was a, I was a huge Bill Finnegan fan. Well, you talk about journalistic rigor and the uh, the quality of the work of of those writers. Uh, I have to say that it's clear from the piece that the uh, that the New York Times Magazine published 
uh, is the amount of effort and energy behind this uh, this journalistic uh, product is is fantastic. It's clear you you spent some years on this and really dug deep into uh, the community of players involved. Can you talk a little bit about the workup of this piece? How long did it take you? Uh, tell us a little about who you were speaking to. Yeah. So, um, you know, I guess the sort of the seed of the idea came when I was writing the book, the, the drowning of money Island. I, uh, I decided to get a, a, a broader perspective beyond the Bay shore. So I reached out to uh, Stuart Farrell over at the, at Stockton University's Coastal Research Center, and um, I sat down with with Stu, and you know, I think whatever questions I had for the book just went out the window within <laughs> ten minutes, and and we just ended up talking for about two hours about the history of the Jersey Shore and and all of the beach replenishment work that he had been involved with there, and it really boiled down to not much, maybe a sentence in the in the book, but it was such a striking conversation that I that I had with him and then right about that time the Army Corps put out the the very beginnings of their uh, back base feasibility study and and it seemed to me that that there was something happening here with regard to uh, flooding back bay flooding not ocean flooding uh, that that was similar to what I was seeing in the reporting for the book so from you know between Stu's just wealth of knowledge and 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 what I was seeing sort of this bit of a turn within the Army Corps of Engineers I I, I saw something brewing here uh, a story and, and that was that was a couple of years ago it the the article pulls together some fascinating statistical information I want to throw out on the record for the listeners out there um, you talk about the extensive beach restoration program that the state of New Jersey has engaged in in cooperation with the federal government through the Corps of Engineers. Uh, since the 1980s, uh, late 80s, you report that the state has pumped 134 million cubic yards of sand onto the shoreline of the state of New Jersey across 130 miles of coast at a cost of $2 billion, an incredible investment that continues today. Um, and you also point out something that is, is a surprise to me, that uh, according to Climate Central and Zillow, about 4,500 homes worth $4.6 billion were built in New Jersey between 2010 and 2016 in areas that are subject to flooding risk, uh, kind of the highest uh, growth rate of high-risk development, I think, in the country. Um, we're seeing these two sides of the coin, a massive federal-state effort to respond to uh, flooding and storm risk, and at the same time, a continuing massive investment in in development along the shoreline. Uh, it seems like a contradiction to me. Uh, how did that, in pulling that together, what what was your impression of, of those two kind of fact threads that you built into this article? Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it, it really was the, the contradiction that I, that I wanted to, to dig into. I mean, that, that stat from, from Climate Central and the way it's written in the story, uh, we, we don't even say that that the vast majority of that construction came after Hurricane Sandy. So not only was is is just that six year period um, significant, it's it's even condensed down to less than that, you know, a four year period. And 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 that ends in 2016 and, and it's done nothing but but continue to just increase the development at at, at breakneck speed up until now. So um, it was just. The, the contradiction with something like Hurricane Sandy that laid bare the, the vulnerabilities that we have here on the shore. And then again, that, that defiance, it's, it's, it's just striking. And then to have, you know, to have someone like Climate Central and Zillow that just put numbers to it really, um, you know, it, it really drives, drives home the point that, that we have something uh, substantial here and, and, and really something that <laughs> needs to be thought more deeply about. Andrew, uh, one of the things that I really appreciate about the way that you 
uh, tackled this piece is that you began with uh, you set the scene by actually discussing the geologic and kind of human history of that space. Would you kind of talk our audience through uh, what the Jersey Shore is geologically and kind of what the the human history is? Uh, you know, in a few minutes, <laughs> walk us through <laughs> how how that the Jersey Shore has changed over the years. Yeah, I mean, I I think it's uh, I think that's one of the anyone who's sort of spent time not only at the Jersey Shore but on any any shoreline and any certainly any barrier island quickly comes to to realize that they're they're constantly moving. So I, I wanted to drive that that point home, you know, and just the 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 origination of the shore is a story of movement, right? That you know when the the last glacial period. You know, there there begins a melt about ten thousand years, and and the ocean just sort of steadily starts moving westward. You know, eventually to the point where it is today, which is it's about a 300, 300 feet of difference. And then, you know, so I wanted to capture that movement. And then the other thing that's that's really interesting is that the New Jersey coastal plain, which really makes up the the entirety of sort of the the bottom lobe of New Jersey. You can th- kind of think of New Jersey as having a sort of a northern and then central southern lobe and that entire plane sits you know it's it's about six thousand feet of of you know what what geologists say you know sits unconformably over you know a solid rock base so that in and of itself even below us is a sort of an unstable environment so i just kind of wanted to move um move the the narrative sort of through geologic time just to sort of get this this feeling that everything that we're about to talk about in the story is is sort of momentary it's it's not solid and and you know it's a constantly changing situation so i thought it would be a good idea to sort of start at the beginning and then of course narratively it just it just works right because it, it's a it's sort of a uh, chronological story and that's always really helpful to to sort of lock readers in and and, and get them get them through the story well, I think that's that's uh, in the threads of the story. This 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 investment that's being made by the Corps of Engineers in the state to uh, pump billions of dollars onto the shoreline to respond to the risks. At the same time, the development which continues at a significant pace. The third thread of the story I loved was the scientific. A backdrop of the entire piece where you introduce us to Dr. Stuart Farrell from Stockton University Coastal Resources Center, who's been working on understanding the Jersey Shore for decades now, late in his career. Talk to us about uh, Stu Farrell and his perspective on on what's happening. Yeah, uh, you know, Stu's just a He's just a wealth of information, as you said. He's he's been doing it. He's really been at it since the the beginning of of the 1980s, before New Jersey had sort of a dedicated beach replenishment program. And Stu is, you know, he he embodies this this contradiction that we've been that that we've been chatting about this this contradiction of, you know, wanting to live at the shore. Um, Yet it being such a sort of a an unstable place to live because you know Stu's entire career and 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 his scientific uh, interests are in beach profiles, beach surveys, and, and he's done tremendous work uh, consulting for the for the municipalities along the shore, helping to survey their shorelines, helping them to figure out just how much sand they need for beach replenishment projects, and yet you know so he's he's essentially helped them um, proliferate. And yet, you know, I think now these days, you know, after sort of decades of doing it, Stu is starting to to think about maybe the, the, the futility of, of the barrier islands. I mean, certainly the work that he's done on the Atlantic coast has, has saved these communities uh, a lot in damages. But, you know, over the years, certainly since Sandy, you know, he he began to to see this back bay, back bay flooding and and how it, it was just it's worsening, and no matter how much we put on the ocean front, if we, if we can't fix the back bay, 
uh, it's it's not going to help these communities at all. So, so Stu is, you know, he, he's proud of the work that he's done, but I think he's also coming to realize that that you know life on the barrier islands as as we think think of it certainly as as new jersey thinks of life on the barrier islands is is sort of becoming more and more untenable certainly when you look at it again through that through the big picture where the water of course will win and i have to say uh that this piece is accompanied by just stunning photography it's all done in black and white the photographer is devon Oktar Yelkin, uh, just just really excellent uh, photographs that accompany this story. So again, highly recommend everyone go and check this piece out. Um, one of the things that I find also very interesting uh, along the same lines as Stu is Stu was working for many of these communities, many of these little cities and townships that dot the shore. And those places are being led by uh, officials and mayors, and you actually went out and did the work of meeting up with those people too. Can you tell us a little bit about their uh, understanding of the state of affairs out there on the Barrier Islands? Mm, yeah, it's it's really interesting. Um, as I mentioned, the, the the project started quite a while ago, uh, prior to to COVID. COVID certainly shut it down, but the idea was to just get in the car and just go south all the way north and, and just hit uh, every municipality and talk to every, you know, the hope was every mayor of, of the municipality, but certainly, you know, planners, um, you know, engineers, if, if they, if they wanted to, to talk about it. So that's what I did. I, I spent um, quite a bit of time talking to a lot of folks and of course not everyone makes it into the stories, but I think that, the interesting thing about the Jersey Shore is it, it the municipalities tend to be uh, conservative, sort of politically conservative places. Um, and, and of course, we all know that, you know, um, conservatism doesn't always lend to uh, a belief in climate change in, in some places and stuff like that. But in these in these areas, I mean, there's there's no doubt among these officials that, that climate change is real and the, and the water is rising. And because they just they they face it every day, so it it was it was fun to sort of dig into that with them. Um, but at the end of the day, you know they have they have you know homes to homes to protect, and, yeah. and so they they sort of hedge, you know they 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 hedge uh, how much they have to worry about you know rising seas, and you know it's it's a it's a tough fine line for them to walk. It is, and and you 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 highlight it because uh, I th I'm not going to get I'm not going to list names here because I don't have them off the top of my head. But you talk about one mayor or maybe a couple uh, and a, a resilience officer, if I don't recall, if I recall correctly, who are you know basically saying, yeah, we're going to do what we can do. Um, you talk a great deal about nuisance flooding and the fact that it's really proliferating, and I. I have to imagine that that is uh, in sticking in people's uh, minds as uh, kind of a prod to, hey, man, this is really this is real here. There's actually water in the streets. But then you talk to another mayor who it, it sounded to me was was a little bit more forward thinking or at least embracing the fact that the rising seas and the potential for major changes, major changes to the way that her town is uh, functioning could exist. Could, could, could you elaborate a little bit more on her and, uh, and I apologize, I don't have her name off the top of my head, um, but could you, could you elaborate a little bit more on her and maybe any, any idea as to why she stands out as being a little bit more uh, forward thinking? Peter, you got the name here. I do. It's, it, he, he, was, he interviewed Nancy Taggart Davis, uh, who's the mayor of the tiny borough of Beach Haven on Long Beach Island. She's in her 70s. I thought her perspective was interesting. Uh, share a little bit, uh, if you wouldn't mind, about uh, Mayor Davis's perspective. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm with you guys. Uh, that was... Um... That was a striking conversation I, I had with with uh, then Mayor Davis. You know, it, there there's something else that that you always hear or that I heard a lot, and that was, you know, because I would always ask, 
well, what about 2100? What about 100 years from now? And so many times I would hear, well, 100 years from now, I'm not going to be here. So so who cares? And and what's interesting about that on the Jersey Shore is that so many of these towns sort of hang their their um, their cultural identities on on bygone eras, a lot, you know, 1930s, 40s, 50s. And, you know, the that time, those those eras were about a hundred years from now. So I'm always struck by how little our municipal leaders are thinking about a hundred years from now and that there will be people looking back on our time. And, you know, what will they, will they think so fondly about us? And, and so, so many times I would get these sort of dismissive, well, I won't be here in a hundred years. So I'll let that be someone else's problem. And then, and then of course, Nancy was kind of later on in the reporting, I had spoken to a lot of people. So when she, I, I sort of brought up that question and she really chewed on it for a while. She really thought about it. And, and um, I think, you know, she has, she has kids, grandkids, and, and for whatever reason, it, it just sort of resonated with her a lot more. And, and she was willing to admit that, you know, one day, some real estate will have to be surrendered. I mean, it was it was it was hard enough getting people to um, consider surrendering just a few homes or a block of block of homes. They just don't don't want to don't want to consider it. And and Nancy did, and she was very thoughtful about it. And mm-hmm. and of course, also uh, her construction official Sean McCotter, who was there with her, sat in on the conversation with us. I mean, he was he was sort of just as as reflective and, and introspective. And, and he was the one that said, you know, eventually the, the water will win. It's it, it was it was a refreshing perspective, I think, in its honesty and it's willing to confront this contradiction that we're speaking about the attempt to fight back risk and the continued commitment to. She's a hero, man. She, she reminds me of Ulysses S. Grant. <laughs> She's being like, well, there, this is she. She is a true leader. I really, I have to say, I liked her too. In this I hope story. she steps back into public life. Well, I, I yeah. think what, one of the observations that you share in the story is that in interviewing these dozens of New Jersey mayors and engineers, municipal f- officials about their efforts to uh, continue their communities in the way they have, that you say that none had seriously considered curbing development to reduce risk to life and property. And I don't find that conclusion hard to believe, but I do find it sort of surprising in the sense that you would think it would, uh, the circumstance would manifest some reflection. Um, Were you surprised by uh, the fact that there, uh, I guess this defiance we're talking about is is deeply ingrained even in uh, responsible public uh, officials who, have the responsibility to look at the long-term, you know, uh, s- stability of their communities. I mean, I guess I was, and I wasn't, I think from a, from a human perspective, I was because it's, it's hard to, uh, you know, look at how much sea levels have risen on the Jersey shore. Um, in New Jersey, it's, it's 18 inches since about 1910, 16 inches at Atlantic city. So, it, it's hard not to look at all that and and and, and not be a human and, and, and think about uh, big big decisions like retreat, managed retreat, surrendering uh, areas of of your town. But then on the flip side, you know these folks are sort of operating within a, a larger rubric, which is the you know the way that the the federal government um, you know awards for. Right. quote unquote re- resiliency and, and, and things like that. And, and I, and I talk about it a bit with um, Marty Palugi of Avalon. Uh, he's such an interesting character because he very early on, he realized via Stu Farrell and, and Stu's surveys, beach profile surveys, that if you could, you know, quantify how much sand you lost in a storm event, then, then you could then turn around and turn that into a number and get, money back from the from the federal government to then you know replenish uh you know build pumping stations all of these sorts of things so if you're a human you know it's it's easy to put your guard down and thinking about all that all the change that we've seen but if you're sort of a pop politician operating you know within the system that we have in this country with regard to um you know 
funding post disasters, it's you, you have to operate in that sort of in that shrewd way. So um, maybe after a few drinks without the recorder on, who knows what you know what everyone would have said. But I think when you're when you're on the spot there, as the as a spokesperson for your for your town, you you have to sort of hold that line a little bit. And 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 in the end, the decisions that they make are just they're they're the decisions that that get their towns um, the most amount of funding to 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 do quote unquote resilience projects. Yeah, to keep it going. And and maybe that is the reconciliation of this contradiction that we're talking about is uh, there is a clear understanding of the risks involved. The story is well researched in terms of what's happening on the shoreline and the awareness of towns and communities all along the shore. But because there is this seemingly uh, unlimited checkbook available for investment in shoreline restoration projects, and now the Corps of Engineers looking at substantial investments, uh, we're talking in the billions of dollars in what's called the uh, Back Bay Study, the Army Corps of Engineers New, uh, New Jersey uh, Back Bay Flooding Study that they're that they just put out today for public comment, by the way, uh, public hearings coming up on the, on the Back Bay study. But estimates are that, the, that preventing flooding from the backside of these barrier islands uh, is an investment that it could be in excess of $15 billion. Uh, can you talk a little bit about this Back Bay risk? And in particular, I was fascinated by the hobo uh, uh, water monitoring system that has been developed and and deployed in New Jersey. Yeah, uh, the again the, the the Back Bay awareness um, it certainly it, it it certainly intensified after Sandy. But then there was another uh, storm in 2016, January 2016, called Jonas. It was just a winter nor'easter, and Jonas nearly flooded. The back bay areas of the barrier islands as bad as sandy it was it was it was a real shocker for for everyone because it was you know it made a blip in the in the local news but not much more than that so it was just it, it was stunning for people because you know sandy there was so much national attention and and so much spotlight but then here was this this anonymous storm basically that came through and caused just as much damage and all of it came from the back bays so that was the impetus for um, for Stu Farrell's hobo project. You know, he he that was really when when CRC started to shift their they haven't shifted their focus entirely to the bay. They've just expanded, and and that was Stu's solution to to monitoring back bay flooding was to get these pressure sensors and and you know think about how can we deploy them in ways that we can start to really map this back bay flooding in a, in a granular way on these islands. And, and again, Marty Palugi in Avalon was, was the first to raise his hand along with uh, Nick Russo, Nick Russo in nearby Longport and say, yeah, come on in, you know, please show us where, where the flooding uh, begins first. And, you know, that's, that was sort of the, the beginning of it all. And, and sort of, of course, in that, in that same time, the, the army Corps embarked on this, on this back bay study so it was really that was the, that was the impetus for it was was this this uh, winter storm Jonas and and from then on forward I think I think if you asked all of these these uh, municipal officials as I did you know their their primary concern these days is 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 how that water is, is creeping in from the backsides of of their islands. Can I, I don't mean to put you on the spot on a technical issue, but I thought it was very interesting. These sensors that were developed by Stu Farrell. Uh, can you describe the system a little bit, maybe for our for our listeners? Yeah, they're um, so all they are is are, are pressure sensors, and they're about they're a little bit bigger than a than a cigar, and they just they zip tie them to the undersides of these storm drains. So um, as you guys know, uh, if there's a rain event or uh, at least on the Jersey Shore, a strong northeast wind, it holds water in the back bays and that water starts to back up through the storm drains that the outflow pipes go into the bay. And that water first starts to appear in the storm drains. So as soon as that water backs up in those storm drains and hits the, the hobo sensors, um, 
all the way down, I think it's to almost a, a tenth of an inch or something, they'll yeah. record what is called an event. And and then they keep if say there's two tide cycles, uh, it'll record, you know, multiple events and then Stu's uh Stu and his team are able to sort of crunch the data and see just how many times uh, a street has flooded in in one sort of strong wind event or rain event or storm and in doing that they can they can then compare it to other areas in the towns they usually set up between i don't know 10 and 18 um stations throughout town all zip tied under various storm drains and in, and in that way they can then develop uh this this really detailed map that that shows just how much water has sat on top of these storm drains um and for how long and you know and which places the flooding begins first and and where it dissipates first big data we got a lot of big data and data on the american shoreline and let me tell you something <laughs> I, I i some people are paying attention to it i know that, that we have got good scientists people that know are paying a lot of attention to it we do have some good policymakers paying attention paying attention to it but is the market paying attention to it? Because New Jersey, I was shocked to learn in this piece that New Jersey is a more rapidly developing coastal shoreline area than Florida. Yeah. That's crazy. And uh, Andrew, I've got to ask, as someone who grew up surfing along that shoreline in Delaware, but I'm sure you went over to the other side there of of that bay and uh, uh hung out in New Jersey as well. I have to imagine that there has been a great deal of gentrification of the communities that um, have lived there, not only in, in, of course, what you've observed, but probably going back long before you were there. Can you talk about the the nature of who's, who's building these brand new big houses in um along the coast in New Jersey. And, and what, is, what, is, what is the vision for these places? Are these places that are going to be inhabited by families or, or people? Or are they uh, going to be Airbnbs, kind of tourist, tourist hotspots? What's the, what's the profile of the tourism economy and the communities that are supporting it on, in, on the New Jersey shore? Yeah, I mean, I, it's such a good question. And, and the crazy thing, and sort of a caveat to what I'm about to say is, the pandemic is, has changed things a lot, and I don't think we we quite know yet just how it's changed. Uh, for example, in in Avalon, uh, I, I I have heard from um, a couple realtors that the the sort of the demographic of those who are coming in and buying these homes, and of course Avalon's um, median home price at this point in time, I think is something like two point eight million, and so there's these younger uh, People coming in from from the cities, as we know, that has happened with a with a pandemic, and and they're buying up these homes. But then there's another very interesting phenomenon that's happening, um, because I live right here at the coast in, in South Jersey, and every day I'm I'm on the the Barrier Islands, and you hear that you know properties, vacation properties have been booked up for the summer. It's the craziest summer everyone's ever, ever seen. But then you kind of drive around and you see a lot of empty parking spots and you start asking around as to why that's the case. And what's happening is is wealthier and wealthier people are buying up these homes. And these these people don't need to sort of rent out their homes on a on a weekly basis, which is oh. the, the tradi tradition on the Jersey Shore. Um, and that's because the homes that that people were renting out, uh, say when I was a kid, uh, they were a lot smaller than the ones uh, that are going up today. So the, the costs are are skyrocket, skyrocketing into a into a zone that the vast majority of us can't afford. So it's really changing the, the, the sort of the the dynamic of the town, the, certainly the culture of some of the towns. Um, and I'll just say that. <laughs> Uh, my 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 mother's grandfather had a home, had one of those classic uh, sort of beach shacks in in, uh, in a, a town called Sea Isle. Which Love is, a beach shack. Yeah, classic sort of fishing shack, and and they would go down, and it was uh, they went there, you know, on the weekends, and I think my my uh, my mother's brothers learned how to surf there a little bit, and 
the the storm uh, in the in the nineteen sixties, the, the the hurricane, it 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 just washed the the shack away. And and everyone, when I ask my mother today, she'll just say, "Well, we don't know what happened to the house. It just simply uh, disappeared." And and so that was the way that it that it was when she was a kid, and even when I was growing up. Uh, in the in the 80s and 90s, there there were still plenty of those little shacks along the along the shoreline, and now in the, in in all of the the barrier island towns, they're they're huge huge places and they're mansions and that's and that's inevitably going to, you know, force out um, people for affordability issues, and and again just to sort of wrap it up, I mean now we're having this situation where we have are we going to have more and more homes that sit empty you know, for longer periods of, of time in the year, because they're, they're sort of just amounting to, to investment properties. I mean, I don't think I, I I'm seeing less of an interest in buying a home here for, to, to, you know, to rent out on a weekly basis and just to buy a home because, you know, the market's on fire and you've got the money to do it and it's just an investment property. So, you know, what does that do to the culture of a, of a place? That's a very good question, and I don't like it. But uh, one of the one of the real reasons why I don't like it is I like communities with diverse economies, and uh, people really like that includes working class people. And one of the things that that you touch on that again, I'm just so impressed that you covered so much ground. But you also talk about the uh, the the coming of wind jobs uh, and how. Uh, up a little bit further north from Avalon in Atlantic City, uh, that Atlantic City is kind of positioning itself to be a hub for the Jersey, New Jersey offshore wind farm. And I'm sure there's going to be several, I'm sure there's going to be literally thousands of wind turbines off the coast of the Atlantic there, and that there will be a lot of jobs. Um, is there uh, is there optimism there that this could diversify the economy and bring about um, I don't want to say another golden age that might be a little too optimistic but another a working class uh, a community of people that can can live live on the Jersey Shore well uh, I mean it's interesting you, you bring it up um, at this point in time and this is probably fodder for another story down the road but you know there's there's a massive um, backlash to the to the wind farms offshore in these communities and it really boils down to there's there's a lot of reasons that opponents will use but it really boils down to not wanting to see wind turbines on the on the horizon so so an obstruction of of their of their views um that's in the the more residential places ocean city long beach island uh these kinds of places in atlantic city it's a it's an entirely different sort of economic dynamic going on, and and Atlantic City is really positioning itself to uh, be a hub for for these jobs for these for these wind farms. It's it's going to happen. I mean, it, it's it's really moving at breakneck pace, and and you know you could sort of look into the you know how good that is the the speed that it's that that these wind farms are coming, but they're coming, and Atlantic City obviously coming off a very tough error with the casinos and just really having one catastrophic failure after another they're they're looking to diversify the way that the that the city uh, finds its fundings the, the the type of workers that it attracts so you you'll find a big push within Atlantic City's government you know to to attract these these wind farm companies i believe orsted already has one of their their main headquarters there in town so so it's already happening. You know, the subject of the transformation of communities along the American shoreline is one we love to cover. And we've talked about a couple here that were highlighted in your article, uh, the emergence of wind power and how that might reinvigorate or at least change Atlantic City. And we were talking about the type of construction uh, which I think is one of the most important forces on the American shoreline is the development of larger investor-owned properties. It is not uncommon that 50% of the housing stock in a particular barrier island community is owned by people who are not residents, which means they are not voters. 
they're not local taxpayers in a complete way. Obviously, com- uh, property taxes apply, but it means that there aren't children who are going to school, and it really does change the nature of these towns as they move toward this, uh, I don't know, uh, more selective, higher-end ownership. I mean, yeah, it's, 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 it changes elite. everything about and, the p- town. And Peter, the other thing, as you, as you, I don't mean to, I'm just yeah. adding a little, uh, little flavor to your comment here, but natural, the, the, the element of the coast is that there are big storms, and when the big storms do hit, it expedites the process because it, it levels people. People are like I can't afford to rebuild this, yeah. and they're out. And then immediately, there's some someone's smacking their lips. Some rich guy's like, "I'm I'm taking that lot. Yeah, that's not going to be my spot." So yeah. it, it just you know the coast it, it goes very quickly. It's hard to like hold out for generations on the on the coast. What do you think, Andrew? Do you do it, 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 did that the transformation was that apparent in in your travels up and down the Jersey Shore? Are we exaggerating that? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's you, you talk about community um, and and just there there is a disconnect. Obviously, you know, sort of real estate transfer fees and taxes and these kinds of things are are pumping big money into these communities. But when we think about community, sort of. At the deepest level, you, you think about things like you mentioned, voting and, and you know, school and, and just local year round business establishments and, and things like that, that really are the sort of the threads that make up true community. And, and that's something that you're losing when, you know, a, a huge majority of, of, of the homeowners in the place are absentee, you know, so it then makes it harder for um people who want to stay to stay because it's just bigger and bigger homes being built and the other thing that when you when you have sort of these these part-time owners and i've i heard this kind of a lot of times off the record from a lot of these municipal officials is that these folks and and rightfully so because maybe you're from you know nowhere near the coast they really don't have an understanding of, of coastal flooding all they're really seeing is that if there's an event you can get money from either, you know, through NFIP or, you know, through through direct aid. You know, you can rebuild your home. If you have money in this country and you your home sustains massive damage from a disaster, you can rebuild very fast. Um, and that's not the case for, um, you know, people who might not have whose home primary home is at the at the coast. That home gets damaged. They don't have a second home to go home to. So it's it's favoring this transition that we're seeing to sort of absentee homeowners. And and again, that just that erodes the the, the fabrics of, of culture that that we should and and hope to find in you know the American community. One of the things uh, that is on my mind is the proximity to New York City and the fact that New York City is a global, uh, the maybe global hub of uh, international finance and markets and banking and uh, an incredibly important feature uh, in in this country, in the world, and of course on the American shoreline, no less. And that uh, Sandy really put its crosshairs not only on the Jersey Shore, but also uh, on Manhattan. And I'm wondering, you know, I have friends who live in New York, and I, I'm often told, oh, New York will be fine. You know, we'll do what we have to do. And there's this real sense that the federal government will, like, bail out, will have the solution, will throw the money and and bail out New York City. And I'm wondering if in your travels uh, up and down the Jersey Shore, if you felt like people in New Jersey were like protected by that New York bubble or or not? Uh, did, is that it might not even exist, but I'm, I'm curious to know if that's something that you've you've encountered. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I, I think I mean, I think there's a lot of homeowners here, you know, from New York City anyway. So you, you have that, right. that mentality trickles down. Uh, but certainly there's there's this idea whether people are even sort of aware of it or not that 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 you will be bailed out um just because it, it goes back to the beginning of our conversation you know it, it it touches directly at this idea that we can we can come back from from anything because we're 
we're America, you know? And, and, and so when, you know, the actual mechanisms of the federal government in terms of disaster aid and relief, and, you know, they, they, they favor that, that deep seated mentality that we have. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, people, people think that, um, you know, so what uh, Sandy O'Com, it's a, it's a nuisance. Certainly if it's, if, if your home on the coast is a, is a second home, then, then what the hell a storm blows it out and you, you'll get money to rebuild it and, and move on. I mean, that's exactly what happened after Sandy. It's one of the, I think, underlying issues in coastal communities all around America is the equity issues that are involved in post-storm disaster benefits. Uh, and like you said, if you're if you're wealthy, this is a second home, that, and you're sophisticated and are able to work through complex federal aid programs like FEMA and disaster assistance and a variety of complex programs that homeowners navigate, uh, there is a pathway to recovery and financial support. At the other end of the spectrum, in lower-income communities, uh, the track record of recovery is horrible. And I, I like the fact that you ended this this story, the article, uh, with this interview and discussion of Michael Cagno, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, the artist who owns the, I guess, Noyes Arts Gallery in Atlantic City in Ducktown, uh, I guess in Ducktown, the Atlantic City neighborhood. Can you talk about about this person and how they fit into the story? Because he's looking at sort of a dystopian community it sounded like of abandoned houses and this it's like going and painting a ghost town yeah and this rise of artistic opportunity i mean help us understand michael cogno and how he fits into the understanding of the coastal transformation yeah i when when i met and spoke with and then eventually walked around ducktown with with michael i i knew right away it was it was it was going to be the the end of the piece and and not just because of um, you know, Ducktown's such bedraggled state. I mean, it's a, it, it it's essentially consists of red brick row homes that were built towards the the beginning of the the twentieth century. Back in those times, it was no one thought about flooding. It was just build. They just repeated what they saw in you know what they built in Brooklyn and in, in, in Philadelphia. So they just built these red brick row, home, row homes. And of course, you can imagine how difficult it is if nothing ever changes. Uh, to elevate one of these places, you essentially can't, you know, you can't lift up uh, a home made of bricks, it'll fall to pieces. Um, so there's that. But then walking around with with Michael, an artist, it was just, it, it, it was interesting, because here was someone coming to grips with this idea of the, this community that they loved, and it might be the only way that they could preserve it is is through through art, you know, and and I was really touched with this this idea that I guess touched isn't the right word, but sort of maybe disturbed by this idea that one day maybe all we'll have left is 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 these communities on you know oil and canvas, you know, and then so it's just a it's a sort of a, a very philosophical way to to end things, but you know, Ducktown's a perfect example of if if you're not if the community is neglected, not giving given new seawalls, uh, bulkheads, these kinds of things, uh, it just deteriorates to a point where it, it can't be saved because of the infrastructure is so old and so outdated that um, simply leveling it uh, in in some cases is is the easiest way out. Wow. Um, and and just to have Michael uh, sort of grapple with that thought and and then to just sort of think about how he wants to save it in in the best way that he can through through art it was just a really uh it was sort of a deep profound uh experience after after spending so much time in in these much wealthier communities where the general consensus was well we can you know we can get money and and build back against it well it, it, you know it it there is a commonality here, I thought, in his story. It was so well uh, presented and written uh, about Michael Cogno. Uh, there is a sense of defiance even in him uh, in this mm -hmm. declining, neglected neighborhood. Uh, he's not ready to give up and go away either. He's looking at this as a different kind of opportunity 
uh, not really the type of uh, sort of real estate speculation, high profit kind of thought, but in terms of trying to preserve the culture and character of these remnants of the old uh, shoreline. It was really an interesting take. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I think, I guess just on a personal level, that idea of wanting to save what was resonated with me because, you know, I grew up here and I remember um, a different time, a different, a different place. And so just on a, and, and Michael did too. So I guess we could connect on that, on that personal level. Um, but it, it does just provide such a, it's such a dichotomy from, you know, what's happening elsewhere. Well, I have to say before we wrap this thing up, Andrew, that, uh, this is just a stupendous piece of journalism and, uh, you, you do an amazing job of telling the story and the craftsmanship that you, that you exhibited is incredible. And really what stands out to me is all of the different elements that you were able to tie in everything from the geologic history, uh, to the, the army Corps' 50 year plans, the, the impact that sand, the, the boost that Sandy gave, maybe some of the, maybe in some of the wrong direction that we could armor up and, and build big dunes and, and actually just kind of engine engineer our way out of the issue all the way through to the mayors and the managers, the situation in Atlantic city, and then ending with art, and I've, the little cigar sensors. I forgot the little cigar sensors. I mean, come on, ladies and gentlemen. This is a packed piece. Yeah. Uh, and I've, I've got to say that it's it really helps. I think that this is the type of journalism. Our audience, of course, we're a bunch of coastal nerds here. We talk about this stuff on this show all the time. But for the readers, for the huge audience of the New York Times Sunday Magazine edition, I just think that this is exactly the sort of medicine that we need to be uh, taking as a country around the American shoreline. It, it is complex. There are a lot of elements. It's kind of a little sad. It's a little melancholy. It's a little bit of a lament, if you will. Um, but it's also beautiful. You know, we are creatures of the water. Uh, we emerged from the sea. We have a uh, we continue to have a complex and dynamic and uh, incredibly intriguing relationship with the planet and with the ocean. And uh, the way that you set this all up sets us up for a next chapter, a new book that potentially yeah, is, is, is uh, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that it's going to be uh, uh, peaches and cream, but our relationship can change, as, as was told at the end of this story uh, with the artist. Yeah, I think um, it, it just reminds me of something A.R. Siders said to me in the process of uh, reporting this, and I, I know you guys know Siders. Um, she's such an eloquent speaker and thinker on you know how we're we're, we're dealing with with uh, flooding issues on the coast and, and retreat, and and she just she equated to what's happening now with sort of dealing with with grief, you know, from the the loss of someone, and and you know a lot. It's it's sometimes we. We, when we have something catastrophic happen to to us, we, we deny that that it's happening, you know, and that and that's that's sort of the the process of, of grief. But you know, the, the sooner that we can accept that, you know, something is happening, the sooner that we can we can make better decisions. You know, we, we can we can move beyond um, beach replenishment and raising bulkheads a few more feet, and you know raising the street a, a foot and, and this kind of thing and, and, and we can move into this territory of really thinking about um, new ways of, of adapting to and, and, and living with the water you know it's 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 not going to be the case that there's going to be full-scale retreat you know there's going to be it's going to be a piecemeal thing and 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 communities are going to have to make hard decisions about where to to um, you know uh, let the let the land go back to the water but um if we just sort of st stay stuck in this denial you know that that big things are happening and we just keep implementing this the same old infrastructure it's just going to be a battle to the death you know and, and there is an opportunity you know it is a melancholy melancholy story but there i think there is hope in it a little bit that you know it's a it's a call to arms it's a call to to think more smartly and, and deeper about 
this this place that we all love you know and i think if we if we can think about it in more complex ways we can come up with um you know better solutions so so there's some there's some hope in there somewhere absolutely i think you've made a great great contribution to advancing the discussion and taking what is a really complicated issue and bringing it into a format that can reach the broader public uh, incredibly well done work, Andrew, and we really appreciate you taking time to share it uh, with our uh, listeners on the American Shoreline podcast. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it is Andrew Lewis. He's a journalist and author, authored the piece, The Long, Slow Drowning of the New Jersey Shore. It came out in New York Times Sunday Magazine on August 15th. It is available online. Look it up. The work was funded by the Pulitzer Center for uh, Connected Shorelines, uh, Connected Coastlines Reporting. Uh, just an outstanding bit of work. And he is also author of the book, The Drowning of Money Island, uh, came out in 2019. Uh, a great follow on social media, Andrew. If people are interested in your work, uh, how can they keep up with you? Definitely the, the best way is uh, through Twitter. Uh, same, same as every journalist, I guess. So it's a, that's uh, Andrew S. Lewis one. That's the handle. So. You're gonna need a Substack. You should just do a coastal <laughs> Substack. I think I think that'd be successful. Thanks a lot, Andrew. Really appreciate you taking time to talk to us on the American Shoreline podcast. Really, really enjoyed it. Thanks, guys. It was it was really enjoyable. I appreciate it. Mm-hmm.